Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. And let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you not only for the first day of the week where we gathered together as a faith family, but Lord, we thank you for the word of God that we gather around. Would you take these next few minutes and open our minds such that we understand what we're reading? And then would you give us whatever is necessary to be obedient to what we learn? Lord, thank you for this. And we ask it all in your precious name. Amen. Well, think with me for a moment. Uh, We've got our work cut out for us. I know that last week we set a record for studying 54 verses of Scripture all at once. This is a short paragraph, but there's a lot here. And uh, I think that this passage is, is unique in that it serves a purpose uh, f- f- as an example for uh, how we study our Bibles and how we get the most from them. So think with me. I've, we'll just make up a situation, but you can tell me whether or not I, you identify with something like this. But suppose uh, that you've decided to take on some sort of task or you've decided you want... Uh, um, to plan something and see it to completion. Uh, this could be anything. This could be uh, perfecting a, a cooking technique that up until now you've only seemed to ruin every time you've tried it. Or uh, something bigger like remodel your own kitchens and bathrooms. Or learning another language. You know, Something like that. But you take the time to read what you can about it. Uh, to prepare yourself in, in, in the idea of, of, of self-teaching. Let's say that you go to the trouble to talk to other people who've done whatever this is and you know that they've got some experience. Or maybe if it requires uh, tools or supplies, you go to the store and you talk to the people that sell the stuff. But let's say at a certain point, after having read what you can read, talk to who you can talk to, there's just something missing. There's, there's something that hasn't clicked. Uh, your golf swing isn't improving. Um, the shelves are falling off the wall. The, the cake falls before you ever get it onto the oven rack or whatever. There comes a point to where you've done what you think you can do, and then from that realm of theory... It'd really help a lot if you could just watch somebody do it, wouldn't it? That's, that's actual practice. 
rather than theory. There, there's a point where you can read and read and read. I mean, imagine if you didn't know how to tie your shoe and you could choose watch someone tie their shoe or read the paragraph they wrote about how they tie their shoe. So both have their function, but sometimes a good example really would help. Now when we're reading our Bibles, studying our Bibles as Christians, a lot of what we read lies in the realm of, of theory uh, with the expectation that you carry it out practically. And there's plenty of times, if you've been a Christian any time at all, where you're reading along and all of a sudden you go, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. Uh, th this, this is, I don't even know if I understand it to start with, but then how in the world am I to meet these expectations? One of the best rules, I think, in trying to take on such a task to live the Christian life, understand your Bible, and actually obey it, um, and there are many, but one you might have heard of before. I hope you have. It's called interpreting Scripture with Scripture, where you're reading along and you see something in concept, and you wonder, how in the world could I ever do this? Keep reading, and you'll likely find where someone does that very thing in practice, or vice versa, where Scripture can help explain other Scriptures. I've got questions of this text. Keep reading. Those questions may be answered someplace else. This that we just read, I think, is one of the best examples of finding someone fleshing out things that have been already taught by Jesus when he was here on this earth. Now, it's been some time since Jesus has ascended into heaven where Stephen is living in the context we just read. But let me... Uh, show you some things that Jesus had taught and then we'll study how Stephen lived them out in a wondrous way. Uh, if we were in Matthew, just write down the reference if you want to look at the context later. You don't need to turn there. But in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense to most people. If someone's loving, I'll love them back. If someone hates me, I'll hate them back. But he said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then he kept teaching for years. You might hear that and go, hmm, that sounds good in theory. We keep reading Jesus in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He's speaking to his disciples so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Wow. I thought you said we were supposed to love those people. And if there was one so astute in that audience, Jesus could have said, oh, I, I did. But you might suppose that some of these disciples were trying to figure out how we're going to get that done. I mean, it's, it's one thing when it's an enemy like, you know, somebody that wants your position at work. 
It's another thing when they want you dead. And we just read about a man who was killed by his enemies. So we've got to decide, okay, if the Bible tells us, actually Jesus tells us, that as Christians we should expect to have enemies. Is that true? Well, Stephen's case, yes. And then the Bible tells us, actually it was Jesus that told us, we must love our enemies. And here we come across a passage where a guy actually did. His last words were asking the Father, not for mercy for himself, but mercy for those that are throwing the rocks. So here we have a golden opportunity to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Not just to tell us what it means. Oh, we know what it means, but how to get it done. That's the hard part, right? I, I, I know the, the bar. I just can't get over the bar. Well, we're not going to be able to in and of ourselves. We're going to need help for that. So try this on as well. Um, both of these things that were mentioned by Jesus, you're going to have enemies. Well, I guess you could say that he's preparing people for the notion that they're going to have to live with that. You're going to have to be prepared to live your life as Christians with enemies. Some people are better suited to that than others. And then this other, you're going to need to love your enemies. It's another expectation. We could, I think we'd agree that other people are better suited to that. But usually the people that are suited to one or the other, usually uh, if there's the strength on one, there's the reciprocating weakness on the other side, right? I mean, again, this is all set up. We're building the scaffold here. Wouldn't you agree that about half the population are perfectly fine with there being other people on this planet that don't like them? Maybe they're fine with somebody living across the street that doesn't like them. And of that group, maybe there's people that are perfectly fine knowing that there are people inside their own church that don't like them. And they look at that almost as if a way to validate their own Christianity. They enjoy the process of iron sharpening iron. Uh, they feel like they're doing something right if the world doesn't like the way that they live their lives as a Christian. But it's usually that same group of people that have a tough time compassionately demonstrating that they still love those folks, right? I mean, if you live in battle mode, usually you don't care about casualties, do you? Uh, casualties usually get in the way of battle mode. And usually on the other side of the spectrum, it's not unlikely that the other side of the population looks at those people and might even call them a jerk. Right? But that's just the way they are. Now then there's the other side, and that is folks that are open and, and willing and ready to love any and everyone for any reason. They think the world's better if we just all love each other. Their, their arms are wide open, and it's really a joy to be around these folks. But their weakness is that they usually don't have the same stomach for conflict. Even the constructive type. They might avoid the friction in healthy debate just because that's their temperament. So given whichever side you land on, You'll do one of these things better than you'll do the other. Either you'll love your enemies better, or you'll be comfortable knowing that the enemies exist. 
But if we're going to pull off both, like we watched or listened to Stephen do, we're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit because it's just not natural given our temperament. All right, with that said, let's, let's, uh, let's work through this and see if, if we can learn something from Stephen. Here's how we'll outline this. We know the Bible says we will have enemies, and we're going to see Stephen's enemies in what we just read. So we're going to ask ourselves the question, why did they hate him? Why are they enemies? What, what, where's the conflict? And then second of all, we know our Bibles say we must love our enemies. We're going to look at how Stephen loved his enemies. We're going to ask ourselves the question, how did he love his enemies? So how did he put up with their hatred and how did he love them? How can Stephen be both courageous and compassionate at the same time? Maybe that's the best way to look at it. Courageous and compassionate, same person, same time. So here's the question. Why did they hate him so much? And a little bit of this will be review from what we looked at last week. If we were to go back, it seems obvious that they hated him. I look at verse 54. That's for this week. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Uh, that word enraged in the, uh, in the English Standard Version, that might be different in your version. They all go back to the same Greek words, which means to rip the heart out. They're mad. Uh, they ground their teeth at him. That was a Hebrew way of saying, you know, that they're so mad they grind their teeth. Um, maybe we would say that they just saw red. Why did they hate him so much? Answering that question might help with, with understanding his courage. First of all, he spoke with authority. That's why they hated him. Not everybody speaks with authority. Some people speak with authority that's given to them and really it just sounds like someone else's authority. Well, that's exactly what it is in this case. You've heard uh, statements like, sticks and stones may break my bones, words could never hurt me. In one way, that, that's right. In another way, it's, it's wrong because words can hurt you. Maybe worse than sticks and stones. Um, Words can ground airplanes, words can move the market, words can start wars, words can close businesses, words can empty buildings. There's a lot you can do with words. And there's an ever-growing list of words you can't say of even years ago. They have power. There are words that mean nothing. And then the same words from someone else mean everything. You know, your, your background kind of qualifies you to use certain words in certain ways, wouldn't you say? When Jesus was speaking, this is Matthew 7, when he was done with that Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Those are the professionals. They didn't listen to them. Big deal. Jesus got to teaching and everybody's mesmerized. What was that thing he said about... Uh, you know, love those who are lovely and hate those who are hateful. That's what everybody's always said. I'm going to tell you to do something else. Love your enemies. Okay, I'm listening now because that sounds exactly opposite of what I would think. Same with uh, you know, some of the other. That was probably one of the most provocative. You've heard that it was said you shouldn't commit adultery. But I'm going to say 
that you shouldn't do that in your head that nobody else knows but you. If you think it, I'll hold you responsible to it. It might sound revolutionary. He's speaking with authority. The same is true with Stephen. He didn't conclude his message with the personal disclaimer, making sure that they knew that what he said was only his opinion, and if they didn't like it, they were free to not like it. I mean, nothing personal. This is just the way I feel. I'm, 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 I'm uh, expressing myself just so you can hear me, and then I'll leave. No, when he was done, it's obvious that he, what he thought, he thought was true, and since it was true, these people need to think the same way. And according to the law of non-contradiction, they can't say one thing, him say another, and they both be right. He's got the truth, and they have a lie. Now, that's authority. But the crazy thing about authority is the person on the other side of that argument doesn't usually like it, even if they think what you're saying is madness. No one likes to have someone insinuate that they're, they're wrong, Correct? So, even though Jesus spoke with authority, and since Stephen is using Jesus' truth, he speaks with authority, um, they hate him for it. There's more to this, but let's go to the next point. They also hated him because he spoke of their sin. It's not just that they didn't agree with what he was saying, he's saying that they're guilty. And if you remember from last week, uh, those good check marks of a good sermon, he kept their interest because he talked about their history they knew so well. Then he showed them their sin, and then he showed them their Savior. They said they hadn't sinned, and they said that that wasn't their Savior. But this is another reason why they don't like him. Stephen could have just celebrated their history, could have just praised their accomplishments. There were many. But he told the story as it was, which was a long, consistent record of rebellion against God. That's another thing you can't do and get away with these days. I think you can pretty much get by with, with believing whatever you want to believe, just so long as you don't say that everybody else has to believe what you believe. That's when they'll tell you real quick, you need to step off. And I think this is probably the number one reason why those who might try church and decide they don't want it, they don't need any more, is especially when they find themselves in a church where they'll let the Word speak and the, the Word, God's Word, the Bible, exposes their sin. I mean, really, you want to sit out on a bus, strike up a conversation, learn enough about someone to find where in the Bible that uh, they've sinned and then tell them, oh, by the way, do you know that? The Bible calls that sin. Is that going to be a fun conversation? That's why we like witnessing so much, right? None of us want to be told we're sinners. And even more than that, we don't like to be told specifically where we've sinned. That's even worse. Even though if we're Christians, we all know that we're lost and without Jesus, we're hopelessly lost. I think... I think we're a lot more like these angry men than we want to say. I think we're in a culture where uh, offenses have never been easier. I told you about the bumper sticker I want to make and put on everybody's car. It says, I'm offended that you're offended. 
So everybody's offended these days. We'd all rather just have a party, wouldn't we? And churches would be the best place to facilitate parties every week. It's nice people come together and they all pretend that they obey something and don't really get into, you know, ruffling any feathers. Just have a lot of food and then we'll go home and do it again next week. We'd love to have a party every week, but God didn't die for us to have a party every week. He died for us to remind ourselves who we are, to know who he is, go tell other people exactly that. And populate heaven until he returns. Um, I wish it were different. And sometimes when the, the ministry of the word gets in the way of those parties, people get mad. And these Pharisees, though they might not look like it on their face, their party was pretty good. And this Jesus and his apostles have ruined it for them. And then number three... They hated him because he spoke with authority. They hated him because he spoke of their sin. They hated him because he spoke of his Savior. They hated him because he called out their sin, but they're going to kill him because they, he says that Jesus is the Son of God. And the reason why they, got, they need to kill Stephen because he says that Jesus was the Son of God is because they killed the Son of God. And they can't have people walking around saying, you killed the Messiah. Um, that's what made them lose their mind. If he just said Jesus was a cool dude and I wish you hadn't done that, he, they'd have been mad, but they wouldn't have killed him. Um, and then if you read here, they stopped their ears with their fingers and wouldn't listen. I, I think that that's, they literally did that. probably be bad exercise to say I want you to think about the last person you saw that was so mad that you couldn't believe they were that mad that's probably not a good thought to think about but I know each of us have seen people really mad they're sticking their fingers in there they don't even want to hear and the reason for this they they're hearing blasphemies that they don't want to hear what they consider to be blasphemy but would you not agree that some of the fiercest anger you've ever seen is someone presented with the truth but refuses to believe it? I, I think that's true. Now, most of my experience comes from ministerial work, though I did learn some stuff working at a car lot, working third shift in a textile mill, working landscaping. And I pretty much concluded they're all the same no matter where you find them. Church, landscaping, third shift at a textile mill, or a used car lot. We're all broken people, and we all don't like to hear that we're wrong, even if we know we're wrong. And to have someone show you the truth can absolutely, totally blow one's top. And some people, they just, they never act that way. But the fiercest of anger, I think, comes from exactly this combination. All right, that's his enemies. Jesus said that's going to happen. It wasn't a surprise to him. How did Stephen show courage knowing that he's living with enemies who've confronted him, imprisoned, well, not imprisoned him. They're going to execute him before an imprisonment. Um, very courageous, wouldn't you say? He spoke the truth, whether they wanted to hear it or not, because the truth was the truth. He saw it with his own eyes. So he's courageous. 
All right, well, Jesus says we must love our enemies. So let's look at how Stephen did that. Look at verse 59 and 60 one more time. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know how else to say that Stephen loves his enemies when he wants the Father not to hold the sin of his murder against his murderers. So how's he able to love them? We just read about how he's able to be courage, courageous. How is he able to love his enemies? Well, this is from uh, what we've got here in front of us. But as a, for a little bit of background, keep going back to Matthew. This is Matthew 26. This is when Jesus was on trial for his life. Same group of men, um, and they're interrogating him. This is hours before he'd be crucified. The high priest, same fella, stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjourn you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. They want to hear him say it for himself, and then they'll have what they need to execute him. Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, you've said it. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Isn't that just about exactly what Stephen says he saw? Do you think these men would forget such a dramatic exchange between Jesus, who they later would kill, and then these apostles would preach and teach about, and a church is exploding in growth? They're not going to forget that. For Stephen to say those words that they'd already heard from the mouth of Jesus, yes, that's going to absolutely in incite them. But not only as to hearing the same words, but what, what they mean. The implication of what Jesus had said to them, which made them mad, is this. If you kill me, it doesn't matter. The end result is me at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand of the throne of God was the stamp of approval of Christ's work on this earth. That his righteous life, his sinless death, and his payment for the sins of those that belong to Jesus is satisfactory to the holiness of God. If he did it wrong, he wouldn't put him at his side, right? So just in a, in a technical stance here, this is the definition of the word vindicated. You've got me wrong, but God's got me right. And it's acceptable to him, okay? So Jesus risen at the Father's side is the fact that we know that what these men had done to Jesus and what Jesus had done for these men was right in the sight of God. So point number one, how does Stephen, who knew Jesus, how does he love his enemies? Because he knew that the Lord would make things right. Just like Jesus knew that the Lord would make things right. That, that there's plenty of things on this earth called injustice that will never be right in this earth during this time. 
There's some hurt that can never be fixed. There's some accounts that can't be balanced. There'll have to be an eternal reckoning to settle all these things. Jesus knows that God will make it right. Stephen believes that Jesus knew that God would make it right. So that the, the first step in his ability to love these people is knowing there's more to life than this. I've not been wronged ultimately or eternally. The Lord will f- work this out. Even if it involves one's murder. Um, good side point right here. You know, there is a way to handle yourself in this life, especially when you've been treated unfavorably or unfairly. To know that there's more going on than just that. That you can be bigger than the worst this world could throw at you. Um, That you serve a creator who made you for his glory. Down to the uniqueness of your fingerprints and DNA. Who made you with plans to spend eternity with you. Nobody's going to mess that up ultimately Um, this allows you to let go of a lot of stuff maybe not in the moment but in time you choose to look at it that way it could go with (laughs) family differences church differences uh, worldly differences all the way up to enemies that would rather you not be alive. Either the truth that God will make it right is sufficient for you to let it lay, or it's not, but it seems to be enough for Stephen. Second, he knew that this that his Lord was was worth it all. And this is uh, verse 55. And I know that might sound similar. You know, he's going to make it right. Well, he's worth it too. Because some stuff you can just write off. It doesn't hurt. This wrong is going to hurt a lot. Is it worth the pain? But he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He told them, Behold, I see the heavens open. Son of man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, the word to circle there would be glory. He saw the glory of God. How many of you have ever gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God? None of you. But this guy did. And I think it was enough that everything else was nothing in, compar- in comparison. I, ha- I have to be- You could say that... Stephen's able to love his enemies because there's something he knows that they don't know. There's something he sees that they don't see. Um, I've always thought it interesting. I've even read books on um, facial recognition and how to tell when people are lying. You You know there are computers that can tell when you're lying, right? There's computers... Uh, this this fella and, and his wife, I believe, it's a whole institute on how you can come in and talk to one another, answering questions uh, on this list, and they can give you uh, a pretty scary um, 
indication as to whether or not you'll be divorced in 10 years. Because they can read contempt on your face. It's computers. Now, not all of us are astute to detecting what people are thinking by the sight of their face. Right? In fact, uh, some are better than others. That's why some poker players wear sunglasses. Because they're not sure that the other guy can't read their face and see what they're seeing even though it's their eyes that are looking and not the other guys but they might see something change in the way his face looks these men can see Stephen's face but they can't see what Stephen sees he sees the glory of God and all of a sudden it, he's ready to ask for their mercy um Sometimes I say this to the kids. I think we heard it in a movie, but we use it as a joke. We find out there's something they didn't know. It looks like there's a lot you don't know about. I think that has to do with the last point. How can Stephen love his enemies? He knew his Lord, but he knew they did not. I think most of it's probably wrapped up in there. Stephen is getting a a, a revelation here of what the glory of God looks like, what it looks like to see the Son of God standing beside God. That's a lot of information that most of us don't have. But rather than say, fry them, he's saying, forgive them. Um, And I haven't said anything at this point as to the significance of Jesus being described as standing. I don't know if anybody noticed everywhere else in the Bible it says seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In this case, he's standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Is there any significance in that? And truthful answer, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us here. But one thing I heard one commentator say that I think is a lot to think about. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. And now, perhaps, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. You know, the passage of Scripture says, if you'll confess me here on earth, I'll confess you in heaven. So he's standing there as an advocate, right? In that first John, we have an advocate with the Father if we sin. Stephen's not sinless. We have an advocate. How else do we survive the curse given in the garden? If you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die without an advocate, somebody to help us remove that stain that we can't remove ourselves. What hope have we got? He's looking at his advocate, testifying to his innocence because of his faith in Jesus. He knows these men don't have such. Lord, have mercy on them. Because I think Stephen now understands the situation he's in and also understands the opposite of the situation he's in. They're doomed. Absolutely doomed underneath the full weight of the curse of sin. So this is how Stephen asks for mercy of those he did not receive mercy from. So... He knew the Lord would make things right. He knew the Lord was worth it all. And he knew things that others didn't know. It's a good way to conclude an application. Do you know things other people don't know? Do you tell them?
Are you courageous to do such when you know they might not want to hear it? Are you compassionate enough to tell them even when you know they don't like you out of a motivation of love for their souls? Stephen's end is described by Luke in an unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. That's from F.F. Bruce. How does he describe his death? He fell asleep. When you've viewed the, the glory of God and you've heard your own not guilty verdict, I think that's probably the best sleep you'll ever have. Wouldn't you? All is well. Except mercy for those that would remain. And then as if to add a little bit to the chapter, suggest there's more, kind of your glimpse of next week's episode. Tucked away in verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the first verse of chapter 8, which looks like it should have been tacked on to the end of chapter 7, and Saul approved of his execution. I think Luke means for us to see a massive contradiction. The love of this first martyr and the hatred of this man named Saul, who later will be called Paul. But I don't think we're to see anything other than that these events are tied together. I think this is instrumental in Saul's conversion. So at the end of this chapter, the juncture between here and the next. The witness is dead, but the truth lives, and in his very dying, he has sown the seed of a mighty harvest in the heart of the hardest man in the crowd. What melted the hard heart of a rebellious sinner? The love of God displayed by one of his own courage and compassion I know what you want to say that's Stephen it's not me same Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit I wouldn't expect to act like Stephen until you get to a spot where Stephen acted like Stephen right sometimes uh, the Lord gives us what we need right when we need it so we don't show off with it beforehand But I do believe it was love that cracked this heart of Saul and by God's grace. And aren't we glad that Jesus is still in the business of cracking hard hearts through the love of the gospel? Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for a a passage of scripture, a very dramatic, vivid image, but Lord, a very high bar of expectation to be courageous and to be compassionate thank you for this man's example and Lord shame on us for thinking that he was just special Lord it's the Holy Spirit's work in and through him same with any of the rest of us all these things we want to do for you we can't do without you Lord you'll have to make us what we're not you'll have to allow us to be what we can't be And Lord, you'll have to drive us towards study. You'll have to 
compel us to come be with each other at church. You'll have to give us the guts to speak up when needed, necessary. And Lord, you'll have to give us love to give away. We don't have that type of stuff. Lord, give us enough and enough to give away. And Lord, would you be pleased in our not only understanding, but in our obedience. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.